science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it wow. out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. We are your hosts, Aaron Barker. And Liz Neely. And this week, we are presenting stories from people who did research at some point in their past. (laughs) Welcome to our episode, When I Was a Scientist. Yes, and your hosts today, (laughs) me and Liz, one of us has been a scientist or has worked in science previously, and one of us last experienced science directly when she took Plant Biology 101, Plants and People in college. (laughs) Can you guess which of us is which? (laughs) Oh, man. I feel like you've gotten really a lot of like mileage out of that class. It left a lasting impression on you. I mean, yeah, to be to be fair, it was very impactful. You can find out more (laughs) from my story on the podcast about that. But uh, Liz, do you miss doing science all day? I'm honestly, yeah, I do. I mean, it didn't. Of course, it didn't hurt. Like, I was a marine biologist who got to work in places like Belize and Bermuda and like Jamaica and Mexico and Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Like, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. But I miss like people forget sometimes like how um, like boring and like hard (laughs) manual labor a lot of science is. But I even miss those parts. Like I used to be really good at bench work. And um, well, when I say really good, I was really good at labeling tiny little (laughs) test tubes with very precise handwriting (laughs) to the point I would even dream about processing samples. Wow. Um, Yeah, (laughs) I miss it. I miss it. (laughs) So we'll find out, I guess, uh, how our storytellers' experiences as scientists were in their stories today. (laughs) Yeah. Our first story is from Ivan Decker. It was recorded in November 2019 at Fox Cabaret in Vancouver, British Columbia. The theme of that night was Great Expectations. You can probably tell by my face and haircut that when I was a child, I was very interested in dinosaurs. And not just dinosaurs, all types of science. I loved it. Every adult in my life was convinced that I was going to be a scientist. I even have a drawing from kindergarten when they asked us to draw what we wanted to be when we grew up. And all the other kids drew hockey players and army men. And one kid drew a horse. (laughs) I think he later went into politics. But I... Drew a scientist, the typical white lab coat with the Erlenmeyer flask full of the color green. You gotta hand it to Emil Erlenmeyer, by the way, to have a flask named after you. I mean, most scientists have a theorem or something, but that, I mean, he did other stuff. He was a chemist, but that flask is really his, the godfather. It's what we all know. It is the most scientific vessel out there, most easily recognizable, so much so that I, as a five-year-old, had it in my drawing, full of green, with some pencil swirly smoke coming out of the top. I was not an artist, 
My parents, however, were. And in the early 1990s, uh, long before the 2010 Olympics came and quote unquote rejuvenated the area, <laughs> they had a studio in a very cheap, run-down warehouse district on the edge of the brackish waters of False Creek. Also perched on the edge of False Creek was a building that was very important to me at this time, which is Science World. The reason why it was so important was because my parents had a membership, and when we came to the studio, they would take us to Science World to hang around. Sometimes they would even leave my brother and I there and go back to the studio to continue working, a practice which I later found out was not allowed at all. <laughs> but I had fun, and the building was unbelievable. Everything that went on in there was so inspiring and amazing. All of these people that worked there seemed to have the best job in the world, balls of fire, giant bubbles, lightning coming out of a machine conjured seemingly by will, all done by chipper employees in a golf shirt and minimal eye protection. <laughs> and this obsession of mine continued throughout elementary school, but it was difficult because I grew up in a small farming town about an hour outside of Vancouver. So the closest thing we had to science was once a year, a farmer would come to the school with a really big pumpkin. <laughs> and you could line up and touch the pumpkin, and if he liked you, he would let you slap the pumpkin as hard as you wanted. <laughs> and he would say stuff like, yep, she's a beaut. But I was good. I was good at science in elementary school. I loved it. I was not very good at any of the other subjects, but science made sense to me. I remember watering a bean with food coloring to try to make the bean change color, and that didn't work. But it still grew, unlike every other kid in my class whose bean died because they'd chosen to water them with Pepsi. I felt bad for my teacher because she didn't even have time to explain to me that the reason why the bean was green was because of photosynthesis. She was too busy trying to get all the other kids not to just drink their Pepsi. <laughs> and I loved this science. Uh, my love affair with it continued throughout my elementary school and even on into high school. I loved the wonder of it, of, of wanting to know things and then finding them out. And this was before Google. So if you wanted to find things out, you had to find a peer-reviewed book or talk to an adult. You couldn't just watch an 18-minute YouTube video and then go, the Earth is flat, I did my research, I can prove it. <laughs> but then, once I got to high school, though, something terrible happened. Because in high school, this is a time of social change. People start to make new friends. And it turns out that science, my friend, my curious pal, had made a new friend, math. <laughs> a subject which I did not care for. <laughs> this was extremely upsetting to me. It was me in science, running through the fields, drawing pictures of spiders, learning about water. What's math doing here? You are not invited, math. You've already got your own class. Stay in your lane, math. They even divided science up into three different sciences. We had physics, which was just math. <laughs> we had chemistry, which was a new language of math. <laughs> and then we had biology. Oh, there's no math here. It's just living things. But what are living things made out of? Chemistry and physics combined. Ha ha, it was math the whole time. 
Nevertheless, I persisted. <laughs> I stayed on with science. And over time in high school, I started to understand how important science was, how it was then and is now under attack a lot of the time. And it's very important to maintain. And it's, it's at the forefront of all successful society. And it's what we really need. And I was so enraptured with the idea of doing something big, making a change, so that when my teacher told us that there was an opportunity for us to go into something called science career preparation, I jumped at the opportunity. Part of high school is you have to complete a quota of volunteer hours in order to graduate. And so I volunteered for even more hours because they were promised to be in the field of science. And I was very excited. Maybe I would find a place for me where science would fit into my life. And there were only two of us in the program. <laughs> I thought we'd be following scientists around, going to labs, learning about stuff. But that was big city science. Our first placement was at a local bog, <laughs> helping with the conservation effort. Now, I was excited still. When I heard bog, I thought, we're going to be walking around. We're going to be collecting samples. We're going to do stuff, specimens. <laughs> but that's not what a bog is about. I was thinking of a marsh. Marshes are much better. <laughs> Bogs exist to make us appreciate a good marsh. <laughs> if there was a tinder for wetland, we would all be swiping left on bogs. <laughs> the ranking of wetlands is as follows, from top to bottom. Marsh, swamp, fen, bog. <laughs> it's mostly just peat and water and the occasional tree. But it was very important to conserve, and we were going to do that by building a boardwalk through it. So we arrived, me and my friend Michael, the two of us got there on the first day, and our job consisted of taking very scientific two-by-fours, putting them on a cart, and hauling them down the boardwalk, and using a very scientific hammer and nails to attach them to the already present joists and piles that someone with wherewithal had put in there before us. Not exactly something two thin-armed mitochondria enthusiasts were expecting. <laughs> this was grunt work. I was very skinny in high school. Like, if you dropped a roll of chapstick and it managed to spin under a fridge and go all the way to the back, I could still reach it. <laughs> Michael was the same, except with glasses. A real player two situation. Now, on the second day of our carpentry career preparation program, we arrived to find that someone had loaded one of the carts for us, presumably an adult that wore at least a medium t-shirt, because <laughs> it was quite full. And now Michael volunteered to haul that one ahead, and I loaded up my own smaller cart and followed behind. And when I got to the third corner, I heard this horrible crash. And all of a sudden, I heard Michael yelling, Ivan! Help! I ran around the corner to find that the cart and Michael had tipped into the bog and he was lying on his back, covered in two-by-fours with just his bespectacled face poking above the surface of the water, saying, Help me! The boards are heavy! Without thinking, I jumped into the bog to save him. But then I realized that I was also stuck. The two of us were trapped, being claimed by this bog that was so desperate to get back the lumber that had been stolen from Mother Nature years and years ago. 
We were both struggling under its weight. I managed to wrench him free, and we built a boardwalk out of the lumber and climbed back up onto the other boardwalk and had to walk back to the office covered in mud and peat moss and whatever microscopic organisms we were there to conserve <laughs> and call our parents to come and pick us up. And even though it was a harrowing experience and I almost died, I was so thrilled because throughout the entire day, we didn't do any math. <laughs> now, I don't know uh, if it's still called being fired when it's a volunteer position, but we got whatever that is. And so we had to leave, and to get the credit, we just had to write an essay on the importance of bogs, which I made Michael do for me in exchange for saving his life. <laughs> Three years later, I made uh, one of the best decisions of my life. I turned 19, and I called a comedy club, and they asked me to come down and do their amateur night, and it went okay, and I started going week after week. I was working in a grocery store at the time, and I would wander around the store and write stupid jokes like, oh, there's eight-minute cream of wheat and three-minute cream of wheat? Who's getting the eight? You know, I wasn't good, but... <laughs> I started to get better, and I kept doing comedy for a number of years until I met a guy randomly who said, hey, I I've made the big time. I'm going to move to Toronto and I'm gonna quit my job here in Vancouver, and if you want to interview for it, you can. It's at Science World. And I freaked out. I was like, I can't believe I'm gonna get an opportunity to work there, and I interviewed, and even though I had no training, except for some limited bog experience, <laughs> they let me have the job, and I worked there, and it was everything that I had experienced as a kid, but now in reverse. I got to see the young children being inspired. It was the greatest job in the world. I was so happy making tornadoes of fire, freezing stuff with liquid nitrogen. The only difference between then and now was we had new shirts and more eye protection. <laughs> and even though I'm not on the cutting edge of science, there's not gonna be any Decker flask. I feel like even though I'm not there, I can still appreciate science. Like the way that you can appreciate music when you can't play an instrument. Or the way people dance when they can't dance. <laughs> I still love science and hopefully I have inspired someone to do something great. And even still, I'm happy to be a long way from the small town pumpkin slapping science of my past. <laughs> Thank you. That was Ivan Decker. Originally from Vancouver, Ivan is a stand-up comedian that now makes his home in Los Angeles. He's been featured on CBC, CTV, TBS, and many other media outlets. And he's been a part of shows like The Debaters, Just for Laughs, Conan, which I feel like I have to say with all exclamation because it's all caps, Conan. And he has a half-hour special on Netflix. In 2018, Ivan was also the first Canadian to win a Juno Award for Comedy Album of the Year. Wow. Since the award was, yeah, but the first Canadian since the award was given to Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas for the soundtrack to the movie Strange Brew 
1984. I feel like I'm going to win a trivia contest <laughs> with that fact. <laughs> um, Ivan, I really appreciated your ranking of the wetlands. And as someone who has spent my fair share of time in anaerobic, noxious, stinking muds, yes, I, I concur with your assessment, sir. Oh, man. <laughs> the positions that you scientists put yourselves in. <laughs> It's all for the pursuit of sweet, sweet knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just a reminder, once again, before we move on to our second story today, we are having live online shows now every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, and you can check that out at storycliter.org. We have a lot of fun. I Yeah, I have to say I love them. You know, it's three Story Collider stories, so same thing you always expect. Hilarious, heartbreaking, everything in between. But what I really like is... Well, Aaron, not to, you know, inflate your ego or anything. You're an amazing host. And I I really like that you prompt the audience to tell their own 10-word stories in the chat. So I have a lot of fun talking with everybody um, during the show. Yeah. It's great. Yeah, we love to hear everybody's stories. It's really fun. Uh, so check it out. We have a great time together. This is the other beautiful thing is maybe you might end up telling a story for us. So the best way to figure that out is come to a show, see if you like it, and then pitch us an idea at stories at storycollider.org. That's right. Love to hear from you. I am hungry for another story. <laughs> well, here it comes. Our next story today is from Nathan Men. It was recorded in March 2020 at Le Poisson Rouge in New York City. The theme that night was brains, brains, brains. My name is Nathan Min. I'm a comedian, a writer, and an occasional actor of limited range. (laughs) For most of my adult life, I had a hard time introducing myself uh, that way because I was uh, pursuing a career that I thought was more respectable, more impressive, even though I didn't have the passion for it, um, scientific research. In... 2011, I started working as a student volunteer in a neuroscience lab where over the course of nine months, I killed over 600 mice. Uh, That's not an exaggeration. I'm not that good of an actor. I saw some crazy things in that lab because mice are weird. I saw a mouse suck itself and then stroke itself with its two forepaws. This other time I saw a male mouse mount its own brother. Brother was not into it. The weirdest thing I saw was um, a mouse defecating, and it was like mid-poop. Another mouse runs up and pulls the poop out and starts eating it. I don't know, I guess there's only so much to do when you're stuck in a cage. But, uh... Anyway, (laughs) 
besides running simple experiments, one of my main responsibilities was mouse husbandry. And <laughs> as a loving and devoted husband to dozens of mice, <laughs> I was responsible for feeding them, for giving them fresh water, for uh, changing out their cages, and for breeding. Um, I should explain these were special mice. They were transgenic mice genetically engineered to express uh, light sensitivity in certain cell types in their brain. So the idea is you can uh, insert an optical fiber uh, into a part of their brain and through that fiber stimulate that the area of the brain with a certain wavelength of light and then observe the mouse's behavior um, to see if there's an association between excit excitation of those cells and the behavior. You know, behaviors like uh, feeding or attacking or grooming. And, uh, grooming, grooming is an interesting mouse behavior, I think, because the normal human reaction whenever we see a mouse is like, oh, that is, that's disgusting. That is so gross. <laughs> Meanwhile, the mouse, they're just trying to look good. <laughs> I don't think that's fair to the mouse. But uh, anyway, so I would breed these mice, and they would have pups. And when the pups were of age, I would test them to see if they had this special gene. And if they did, they could be used in the lab for studies. And if they didn't, then I would have to soon after uh, sacrifice them. Um, if, if you guys are uncomfortable, you can uh, cover your ears. <laughs> but basically what that entails is um, putting them uh, in a cage and carting them down to a room um, where I put them in a plastic bin. I put a metal lid on top. The lid is uh, attached to a hose that's attached to a gas canister of carbon dioxide. I turn it on, uh, wait for them to go to sleep, wait for them to stop breathing, wait for them to uh, die, and then turn the gas off, uh, take the lid off, take them out one by one, and um, uh, dislocate their skull from their spine by pulling on their tail. And I think, you know, when performed correctly, it uh, is a painless process for the mouse. But uh, it's initially a, a very shocking and uh, stressful uh, process for me. So I would do this maybe once a week, once every other week, uh, dozens of mice at a time for nine months. And uh, I think uh, eventually one day um, a postdoc in the lab noticed I was feeling down. And uh, just imagine me now, but with like low energy. <laughs> 
And uh, we got to talking, and she asked me the question, uh, why are you here? And I didn't have a good answer for that. I think, you know, I don't, um, I think maybe I just had um, created uh, my own cage for myself. I've kind of identified with a mice in that way, uh, destined to be in a uh, scientific research career track and then die at the end. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting. I looked up uh, the definition of the word mousy recently. And uh, the definition was uh, timid, nervous, uh, lacking presence or charisma. <laughs> and I thought somebody posted my biography online. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I, I came to realize that I, like the mice, I was in a cage of my own. It was a cage of fear, uh, fear of what my parents would think if I switched career tracks, fear of what my friends would think, fear of what other comedians would think. What if I wasn't that good? What if I failed? But the difference between uh, me and the mice is that I could step out. And so about a month after I left the lab, got a boring day job and started uh, doing comedy at night. Uh, and then a few months after that, um, all those mice died in Hurricane Sandy. So, <laughs> thank you. That was Nathan Men. Nathan is a TV writer, actor, and stand-up comedian based in New York City. He recently wrote for Adult Swim's Joe Para Talks With You, and previously for The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon. He started performing stand-up comedy as a freshman at Johns Hopkins University and went on to win the DC Improv's Funniest College Stand-Up Competition at the end of his senior year. In 2014, he was selected as a finalist for the Andy Kaufman Award. Thank you, Nathan, and thanks to Ivan as well. We are so grateful for you sharing your stories with us. The Story Collider is also grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is led by me, Artistic Director Aaron Barker. And me, Executive Director Liz Neely. We couldn't do this without the help of our Deputy Director Nissa Greenberg, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, and the rest of our amazing team. Stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Kayla Glenn, Josh Silberg, Nissa Greenberg, and Zach Stovall. The podcast is edited by our podcast team, which is John Chen and Gwen Hogan. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Fox Cabaret and Les Poissons Rouge for hosting these shows. And to everybody who has been a scientist or will be a scientist, it's like scientists past, present, and future. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. Thank you.